0: Good to be with you guys. If we haven't met yet, yeah, my name is Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. I said hi, Nate. Not okay, um, really good to be with you guys. Um, glad you're here. If, if you're part of this church family, man, I'm grateful that you're spending um, New Year's Eve with us. If, if you're new or just visiting, I want to say welcome to you. We're doing something a little bit different than our usual rhythm this week and next week. Typically, we take a book of the Bible, we open it up, and we try to walk through it kind of passage by passage to understand what it's saying in its context. This week and next week, we're taking a look at Acts chapter 1 and 2 and centering around this word devoted. Someone say devoted. What does it mean to be devoted? Devotion is, is taking something and making it the center of gravity that other things in your life begin to orbit around. We've got the Paris Olympics coming up, and athletes have been devoted to their sport, to their craft, right? Their, their resources have gone into it. They've been, they've been paying coaches and traveling and all that stuff. Their diet has revolved around it. Their sleeping schedule, their waking hours have been devoted to these moments where they're trying to achieve some kind of glory. Maybe you've seen parents that have been devoted to their kids. And all their money is going to practices and clubs and braces and whatever and minivans and they're driving their kids to all kinds of things. And that's your picture of a devoted person. Maybe you know someone who's devoted to their their job and it's more than just a job. It feels like a calling to them. Again, there's a center of gravity in their life. Other things revolve around. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's it's less healthy, less good. So let me ask you again, kind of in a, a spirit of reflection we've been in this morning, if you were to look back at this year, 2023, what were you devoted to? Not what should you have been, right? Not what were you supposed to be devoted to, but actually, if you were to take a kind of a sweep back and look at the things that got your attention and your effort and your energy and your money, what were you devoted to? If something kind of crossed the current of your thinking just now, would you just drop that down, even just reflect on that a minute? Again, hear me say this, not what were you supposed to, but what were you devoted to? Again, we're gonna look at this word devoted showing up in Acts 1 and Acts 2 and we're gonna look at what the early church was devoted to. Acts is kind of interesting because it's, it's not just this recipe book for how you're supposed to build a church because there's a lot of conflict and development. It's more of a description of what was happening in the early church but it's meant to wake our imaginations up to what, what could happen. It's supposed to wake up our imagination to what, what kind of church we could be, what, what God could do in our midst. Again, our situation is very different, and it's sort of the, the church beginning to expand and unfold. But as we look at what they were devoted to, my prayer has been that our imaginations would wake up to, to what we could be like as a church family. So turn to Acts 1 if you're not there already on your, on your, um, in your Bible or on your phone, whatever. We'll kind of zoom in on this word devoted in just a minute. But we're going to see a command of Jesus to wait. Someone say wait. wait. And I, I promise you the, the big idea is not like be devoted to waiting. But the disciples were commanded to wait. And as I was studying and reflecting it, I kept thinking about this idea of waiting and how much waiting we really do in life. Honestly, it feels like sometimes you like eat and sleep and work and wait, right? Waiting is this feature of life that, that just happens to all of us regardless of who you are and what's going on and sometimes we wait for little things like like we count down the seconds until the ball drops and it's a new year new possibilities maybe you're waiting for a party you're going to go to tonight or you're waiting for me to be done talking at you already like we wait all the time sometimes it's small things other times you're waiting for bigger things you're engaged, and you can't wait to be married, or you're expecting, or, or you're waiting for, for a job to change, or a relationship to be reconciled. There's so much waiting involved in, in life in these moments of waiting, and waiting can be incredibly painful. Waiting can be this, this trial that you feel like you have to endure and go through. My three-year-old has been put up, she's had to put up with some waiting lately, right? She's been suffering, gang, driving to me, and Papa's house, and it's like a four-hour drive, and she's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? And, and I don't know where she learned it from. It feels like a movie, right? When she's asking, are we there yet? Every couple of seconds, it's like, girl, stop it. No, we're not there yet. We've got hours left to go. But honestly, I think she got it from me. Because I don't ask, you know, are we there yet? I ask my GPS, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Refresh, just check, you know. Okay, great, we're a mile down the road, whatever. I'm really bad at waiting. I think that's where she gets it from. And if I look back on my life, season to season, especially when it came to school, I was like, just, just trying to get to the next thing and the next thing. In high school, it's like, i got to get to college. And then college, is like, i got to be done with college, right? i got to be on to the next thing. And then doing a master's, it's like, i got to be done with that. When I started in ministry, it's like, okay, I'm on salt company. When am I going to be a salt director? Okay, I'm a salt director. When am I going to be a church planter or a pastor or whatever? Like, what, what's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? There's this thing in me, I don't want to wait. It's painful. You feel that too? The pain of waiting. In fact, if we looked at like your screen time, um, maybe that, that's an indicator of the fact that you don't really like waiting, like me. Have you ever been in a restaurant and watched people waiting for their food? They're actually not waiting, they're just scrolling, right? Why would I have to wait when I, when I have TikTok, when I've got Instagram, when I've got news articles, whatever, I, I can distract myself from waiting. We, as human beings, do not like to wait. But what if waiting isn't just like a bug, but it's actually a feature? What if God, in his plan and power was intentional in designing the world where you would have to wait. Big things are little things. That waiting wasn't just something painful to kind of grit your teeth through but God could actually be purposeful in it. What if there was a perspective on your waiting that was different than you've ever had in your life and different than the world around that is that's so frenetic and fast paced and can't handle waiting. What if there was a perspective where you could see God's purpose in your waiting? As we encounter this command of Jesus to wait, our situation is different than that in Acts 1, but there's going to be so much similarity and an invitation to find purpose in your waiting. So so what is the purpose behind our waiting, and how can we be empowered to wait differently than maybe we ever have before and different than the watching world around us? That's what we're going to try to delve into today in Acts 1, okay? If you haven't turned there yet, turn there now. You ready to go? Someone say, yep. Yep. Okay, Acts 1. We'll get to the context in just a minute. The context is actually going to kind of come out of the first couple of verses. So look at Acts 1, starting in verse 1 with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you're familiar with your Bible, you, you know that Acts was written by a guy named Luke. He was a first century doctor and historian. So he's saying, okay, in my first book, that's, that's what we call the gospel according to Luke, this careful historical account of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, and his death for sin, but then his victorious resurrection proving that he was the final payment for sin, that he could beat sin and Satan and death, that anyone who would trust in Jesus would actually have life with him starting now and going on into forever, He's saying my first book I started to tell you about the things Jesus began to do and teach and then Acts is kind of like a part two what Jesus continued to do through his church, through his people. It's written to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus in Greek means lover of God. Theophilus could have been a person that was like a patron of Luke, the person that freed him up to go travel and interview people and buy scrolls and ink to actually write this careful account. It could also be a general inscription to anyone who wants to love God. It could simply be like, hey, if you want to love and know God, you've got to come and understand who Jesus is. If you want to know God, you've got to know Jesus. He could be saying that too through it. Regardless, again, Luke is this doctor and historian taking a careful account of all that Jesus began to do, starting in his earthly life and ministry and carrying on through the church. Now, again, let me say, Acts is not a recipe book for a perfect church, because we see conflict and division and things happening as the gospel is spreading, but it's meant to wake up our imagination of what God might want to do in us. So it's not one-to-one, but there's something going on here we got to lean into. So it says he presented himself alive before he was taken up. He's going to actually show us what that process was like of Jesus' final commands and commissions to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. Look at verse four. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Some Someone say, wait, He commanded them, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's pointing back to a a promise that Luke recorded in Luke chapter three. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, kind of preparing people's hearts. John the Baptist was saying like, hey, the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one is going to come. It's not enough for you to be born into a religious household or, or kind of know some of the commandments. You need a new heart. You can't earn that or work for that yourself, and so you need to repent and and ask God to give you a new heart. And so he baptized people with water as a symbol. Man, I need to be washed clean. I need a new heart. But John said, listen, I'm baptizing you with water, but someone is going to come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Depending on your church background, you might hear and understand different things, but essentially saying all of God's people will be sealed and filled with the presence of God, the personal presence of God through the Holy Spirit. There's not kind of first class and second class Christians, but Ephesians 1 is really clear. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is sealed with the Spirit to guide you, to convict you, to make Scripture alive, to help you learn and know from God, to hear from Him. That It's the sign of the reign of Jesus promised all the way back in Joel chapter 2, this Old Testament promise that, that Jesus says is going to be fulfilled, but first you gotta wait. Take a step back and ask a question with me quick. Why would Jesus make them wait? Because he's God. He could do anything he wants, right? So he could have just given them the Holy Spirit right then and not made them wait at all. He could have been like, boom, you got the Spirit. Go off, do your thing. Like, let's go, let's do this thing. Why make them wait? There's a purpose behind this waiting. If he could have done it a different way and he chose to do it this way, if he's actually sovereign and king and chooses to set up his plan this way, then he's got a purpose in the waiting. There's specific purpose is there, but but again, that's kind of a clue into the fact that if so much of our life has waiting in it, maybe He's got a purpose for us too. So let's see, kind of as they're grappling with this reality and, and stuck in this waiting moment, what kind of questions are they asking Him? How are they they wrestling with this waiting time? Look at verse chapter verse six, chapter one. So when they come together, they ask Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, is, is that what You're going to do? Like, are you, are You doing that now? They had a certain set of expectations of what Jesus' reign would look like and it kind of looked like King David in the past or King Solomon establishing political boundaries and and kicking out their enemies, the Romans, and and kind of establishing a kingdom here and now. They're going, "Is, is that what you're gonna do, Jesus? But their expectations were set on an Old Testament model. Jesus is gonna blow open their perspective, something bigger and better and more beautiful than they had ever seen before. Something even going back to God's original promises in the garden. Look at verse seven. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons my father's fixed by his own authority. Don't worry about that. That's not what you're waiting for to try to understand all those signs and symbols and times. Don't, don't deal with that. But look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You'll be empowered for a specific task. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to go out and tell the world what you've seen and what you've experienced with me, not just what I taught you, but also me beating sin for you. me raising to life. Go and be witnesses." He says, "Start in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the, the political and social and, and religious capital of the Jewish faith. He says, "Start there. Start in the city where I was murdered. Start in the place that's still kind of ruled over by these pagan Romans, but also by these Jewish religious leaders that have even now been spreading lies and rumors that somebody stole my body. Go go start there. But then expand beyond there into Judea, this place that is ethnically and religiously and and linguistically similar to you. And then go beyond that to to Samaria, where you travel with me a little bit, to people that that are different with a different faith. Go there, but beyond that to the ends of the earth. Built into God's kingdom is this, this entire earth kind of vision. Not just one small group of people in a small place, but, but this message about Jesus spreading across the whole globe. So whatever ethnicity, whatever background, whatever culture you come from, you can have access to God the Father through Jesus. Now, the men that were gathered there hearing from Jesus had never traveled to the ends of the earth. They didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles, right? They couldn't, they couldn't get out that far. They had traveled and walked around a little bit with Jesus but they were from small fishing towns. They they didn't know what it would take to go and and speak another language or approach another culture and be a witness to Jesus. They just knew they were commanded to wait. There's great uncertainty in the mission in front of them. There was certainty in the one that sent them and his command to wait, but great uncertainty in where that would take them. Wait until I give you power to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And wait in the city where I was killed. A hostile context. A difficult place with great pressure on your shoulders. Go back into that city and wait. Verse 9, we're going to see what happens after this kind of final charge and promise from Jesus. When he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took took him out of their sight. He ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is another promise that Jesus will return. The same way that he ascended into heaven, he will return as a conquering king to defeat evil and injustice and to set the world right. But listen, they're they're gawking and standing around and waiting for too long where God has to literally send angels to go like, guys, move on. Like, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out here? Like, let's go. He told you what to do. Go wait in Jerusalem. Go. So we're going to see what their waiting looked like in this hostile context, in this time of uncertainty. They don't know how long they're waiting. They don't know exactly what's going to happen at the end of their waiting. What what are they going to do? What is it going to look like? Verse 12, and they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, Luke is very detailed because, again, was a careful historian. This isn't some made-up fantasy world, right? They're not in Narnia right now. Like, this is real world. And so Luke is trying to tell you, like, look, this is where it happened. You could go and walk on that hill. You can see that. And he's even going to list the people that were there because he wants his audience to not just take it kind of on blind faith, but actually go, no, if you want to go talk to these people, go. They were there. They were really there. He's going to list those people. Verse 13. When they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. These were the men that had walked with Jesus and talked with him and heard him teach and watched him perform miracles. And again, people in the first century, the first audience to this, would have been able to go back and go, hey, you know James, right? You know Judas, not that Judas, but you know the other Judas, like you know these guys, like, were they really there? Did they really do this? We don't get that same like privilege of talking to those people, but, but we can trust that this is true. This is history. This isn't fantasy. This isn't made up. These were real people that lived through this. And what were they doing as they were waiting? Look at verse 14. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were devoted to prayer. Someone say Prayer. Their waiting with purpose looked like prayer. Their waiting with purpose, with one accord, was gathered together in prayer. Now listen to me. There's a a certain danger in this message where where we can look at this and go, okay, they were devoted to prayer. Go out and try harder to to do more prayer. Go. Work on it, right? How many times has that worked for you in your life? Just really go out there and pray more. Like, if we're, if we're really just stuck with that, go try harder to be better to do more, to do more Christian stuff, go, like that, that seems to be missing it. That, that seems to be, to be lacking some of the power that God actually wants to have to make us a people devoted to prayer. Because again, the, the command here isn't just like go out and try harder to pray more, but, but we're supposed to have our imagination opened up to what God might do if we became a group of people like them where the center of gravity became Prayer, with one accord, rallying together to talk with God. And prayer is communion and communication with God, talking with God about anything and everything, and also being with Him. Their waiting looked like a time of prayer, and partially because they they didn't know what was coming, they had an uncertain context, and partially because of the hostility. But but even then, something's going to happen in their community that was a great chance for division. This time of uncertainty, actually, we're going to see in the the next section here, could have been a time where there was division in the church and church politics entering right away. Look at verse 15. We're going to see what happened here. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, which, note this, there was like 120 Christians in the world. That's like fewer Christians than in this room, let alone the world right now. That's kind of crazy, right? Imagine the pressure they felt. Jesus says, you're going to be my witness to the end of the earth. And they are like, Really? us? Okay. Peter stands up among these people and says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And Luke makes a note right after this in verse 18. He says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out happy new year and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Ekeldema, that is the field of blood again a careful historian he's like hey you could go and ask somebody where's the field of blood like this is how it got named this is what happened here but, but look at what Peter does next he's going to quote scripture here verse 20 for it's written in the book of Psalms may his camp become desolate let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office what he's doing is he's, he's actually doing similar to what we're doing he's opening up the Bible and he's going okay this is what God had written so long ago. These are his promises and this is the fulfillment we've seen. And so how do we apply that? How do we live this out? How do we walk in light of this? From the earliest days of the church, they've been gathering around God's word and trying to understand it and apply it. And Peter is trying to show us that in these psalms that they're pointing to what happened with Jesus. The Old Testament is is promise finding its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus In fact, the whole Old Testament, when you read it, it's either going to show you promises or pictures of Jesus coming or show you your need for a Savior. Every passage in the Old Testament is doing one of those two things. Again, either pointing directly to Jesus or showing you that no earthly king or power or law or rule is enough to satisfy you need a Savior. Either showing the Savior or your need for your Savior. And, And Peter is doing that right there. So he says, okay, that's what the Scripture says. That's how we're understanding it. Now, how do we apply it? What do we do in light of this? Verse 21, so... So one of the men who'd accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day he was taken up from us, like our day ones, like who are those guys? One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. If we're gonna go be witnesses to the end of the earth and and one of us is gone because he, he walked away, like who's the one gonna join us? Who's gonna be a witness with us? 23, and they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias they have a decision, and two different candidates are put forward. I don't know how long you've been around church stuff. Maybe you're like not a Christian this morning, but moments like these could be moments of church politicking, right? Well, I'm on team justice. I'm on team Matthias. Well, I want my guy to win. I want my guy here, whatever, and it could lead to division and disunity in the church. The uncertainty of this moment of waiting could have been a time for disunity to build rifts among them as a church family. Maybe you've seen that in a church where different camps and different sides start to form. You're like, guys, why are we fighting about this? But all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're breaking our fellowship apart. We're not friends anymore, let alone family. How do they deal with this moment of, of uncertainty where they need guidance that could lead to division in the church? Look at verse 24. And they prayed. Don't gloss over that, underline it. They prayed. That was their instinctive thing because, because the center of gravity in their life together was prayer. And so when they have a decision to make, they pray. They prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry. Apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is kind of a weird moment to record. They're sort of like shooting spiritual dice here, okay? Like if you're familiar with the Old Testament, here's what's going on. They they don't have the infilling, the fullness of the Spirit at this point. They don't have the Holy Spirit to guide them and illuminate and help them with this decision. And so in the Old Testament, there was, there was a process you'd go through where you're saying, okay, God, you are sovereign. You are in control. We trust you to be in control of everything. And so we're going to roll these and trust that actually the result is part of your sovereignty. Like trust you that, that, that whatever happens here, you're ultimately in control. You know our hearts. You know what's going on. We trust you, God. Would you help us? Here we go. And the lot falls this guy, Matthias. Now again, this moment of uncertainty and the potential for disunity actually becomes a time of prayer where they get guidance and direction from God. Take a step back again with me. They're facing promises that they've not yet seen come through. They're in a hostile context. The city where an angry mob had yelled days before, crucify him. They're waiting there. They've been given this, this global mission and this global task that is so far outside of their experience and their reach and their ability and their moments of decision right in front of them right now that could have led to great division and disunity. Our situation is a little bit different than theirs. Again, there's more than 120 Christians in this room, let alone the world, praise God. We don't face the same kind of pressures and decisions they face. We're living after the promise in Acts 2 where anyone who trusts in Jesus is sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 1 is so clear. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us so we're not out shooting dice in the corner or whatever, right, to get guidance. Our situation is very different but I think there's some ways it resonates with us. These moments of, of waiting on God. Waiting for, for prayers to be answered. Waiting for his help and his guidance and direction. Maybe you've been feeling the pressure of a season of waiting in your life where you've been praying and praying and and asking God to show up and and you feel like he just hasn't yet. Like, where are you, God? The uncertainty we have isn't necessarily waiting for a particular prophecy to come, but we are still waiting for the return of Jesus. The the same promise that the angels gave these people, like he'll he'll come back the same way. We're waiting for that still. We're waiting and watching, going, Jesus, when are you going to come back and crush evil finally and bring peace finally and and, and bring your reign finally in a way that we get to experience? We're waiting for relationships to be restored and reconciled. We're waiting for for these moments and these milestones and these celebrations. There's there's so much uncertainty in our lives still, maybe for you individually, but also for us as a church family. God, we want to go plant in Milwaukee. Like, that's what we want to do. Would you help us be about that? God, we want to be a gospel greenhouse. We want to, we want to plant out through the UW system. We think you've given us that dream. Like, how? When? And our, our situation is not quite the same hostility as them, although we do feel pressure. And brothers and sisters around the world feel the pressure they felt. In fact, today, believers in Jerusalem do face persecution, whether being spat on or churches burned. There are men and women around the world that if you share the gospel with them and their eyes open up to who Jesus is, that will cost them everything. Maybe disowned by their family, maybe, maybe literally killed. It can be very difficult to plant churches in some places of the world because everyone who comes to Jesus gets killed off. There's some place in the world where if you plant a church today, you could be arrested, locked up by a hostile government that does not want to see King Jesus on display because he's a threat to their authority. Again, I think there are believers today that would read this and go, yeah, I get that. I know what that's like. That's not our same pressure today, and and we don't have to feel bad that it's not our pressure. Praise God. We get to meet together and plant churches and do amazing stuff like that. But you face a pressure too, don't you? Like it's not, it doesn't score me brownie points with my neighbors to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I work at a church, right? They're super kind and they're generous with that, but man, it's like, oh, you work at a church, huh? So the Packers, I don't know, what do we, we have nothing else to relate on, like what are we gonna do? You being a Christian, you being a faithful follower of Jesus doesn't score you like social credibility in this city, doesn't get you ahead in business in this place. In fact, if you were to talk about the things the Bible is so clear on when it comes to God's design for men and women and marriage and babies and all this stuff, that could get you some outright hostility in our city. Not because you're trying to be a jerk, but just because you're trying to follow what Jesus says. We face uncertainty. We have this same global mission. We face hostility. We face these times of waiting for the promises of God to come. Our situation is different, and yet there are so many ways that that are similar. And so let me ask you how is your waiting? How are you awaiting? Maybe you've heard that like old Christian joke where it's like, don't pray for patience because God will just put you in situations where you need it, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's a joke saying like, I don't want to (laughs) wait. Christians don't like to wait, so don't pray about it, right? We are so bad at waiting. And maybe I won't say we, I'll say I'm so bad at waiting. My times of waiting can can turn into anxiety and frustration or just passivity because I don't want to deal with it. Right? That, that anxiety that builds in when my check engine light comes on. And, and, and the uncertainty of that situation and what this is going to be. I, I start running over the same ground over and over, and all of a sudden the check engine light becomes the $5,000 estimate. You know what I'm saying? Someone say, Amen? Okay? Yep. Man, those moments, uh, or you run over the same argument or the same ground or the same broken relationship over and over and over and over. And it doesn't solve anything, it just makes the knot tighter and tighter and tighter inside of you. Is your waiting full of anxiety? stress building on your shoulders and weighing you down? Maybe your waiting is full of frustration. Family members know to, when you say go, we're going, or you're going to hear about it. Your kids aren't in here to say amen, but they would know. Your coworkers know, man, better get that email on time to you or they're going to hear about it or feel the ice coming off of you. And maybe the servers at the restaurants that you go to know like, "Uh uh-oh, if the food's just a little bit late, I'm going to hear about it. You don't like to wait. Your waiting is full of frustration. Your fuse is so short when you're stuck waiting. Anxiety, frustration, or, or maybe waiting for you You'd rather just not deal with it at all and and, and deal with the tension of being stuck wanting something and not getting it and so it turns into passivity and trying to shut your heart down a little bit so you don't have to wait. You've actually stopped praying about that thing and talking to God about that thing because you don't want to wait for it anymore. It's just, it's painful and why, why bother? Why wait when I could scroll? We've been numbing your waiting with alcohol or with weed or with food. Like maybe you waited to go see family and you waited weeks and you made plans and all that and then you got there and you all were stuck on your phones because you couldn't handle those moments in between. Again, maybe you, you actually don't experience the tension of waiting anymore because you've become passive and closed yourself off. Why find a purpose in it when I can just be passive? I don't think anxiety or frustration or passivity, I don't think that's all that God has for us in this feature of life waiting. And as we look back at the church in Acts, what resulted from their waiting was actually the empowerment of God on their witness together. Their waiting turns into Acts 2, this moment where the Spirit comes, they experience the promise of God, and the story of Acts is the gospel going from Jerusalem all the way to the center of the Roman Empire and spreading to the ends of the earth power on them. Their waiting turned into guidance and unity around these decisions that could have broken them apart. Their waiting... was intentional and purposeful because they were tapped in the purposes of God because the center of gravity for their community, the thing they were devoted to, was prayer. Friends, in our waiting, I think this is something that we need to grapple with and wrestle with and think about and pray through. And, And this is a phrase I hope kind of captures your imagination like it's captured mine. Prayer is how a Christian waits with purpose. Prayer is how a Christian waits with purpose. Maybe there really is a purpose behind the season of waiting God's got you in and he's been drawing you lovingly to be in communication and communion with him. Maybe the God of the universe has been so intentional in your life to draw you to himself that he actually has you waiting because he loves you and wants you to be with him. Like, how could they with one accord be gathered to pray? How could they be so devoted to praying together? It's because they had confidence that the God of the universe had made a way for them to be with him. Not because they'd be heard with all their religious words or religious actions or whatever, but they were praying because God of the universe had stepped into human history to rescue them. As I was preparing this message, one thing that came to mind is, I I wonder if some of our prayer problem is because we've actually got more of an orphan's heart than a, than that of a son or daughter like maybe the reason why your prayer life is is broken is because you don't think that God wants to hear from you or or that your problems are too small or too insignificant or whatever you got to work your way through you you got to deal with your own stuff and then maybe as a last resort, you'll talk to God about it maybe you've got a picture of what the God of the universe looks like that is so distant disinterested and uninvolved that why would you even pray in the first place but what they had experienced, what these men and women had experienced was the fact that, that God would actually cross every bridge, every gap, every divide by stepping into human history, being born in flesh so that he could ransom and reconcile and redeem people to himself. That their own sin, their own divisions, their own whatever could not hold them back from the love of God because he would chase them down to be with him. And Romans 8 is so clear. If God would do that, if he wouldn't even spare his own son, how will we not graciously give us all things with him? Do you think God wants to hear from you? Well, he sent his own son that you could be brought into his family. Of course he wants to hear from you. Is there anything that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Any earthly situation any division, any, any tension, any brokenness, even your own sins and failings, if your own sin didn't even stop God from rescuing you, how will anything in life, even the season of painful waiting you're going through? Friends, the gospel, this good news that God was on a rescue mission for us, that he made the way to us instead of us trying to work our way to him, that good news actually empowers us to pray. Because the God of the universe is saying, hey, you are my son, you are my daughter, come on. And you get to barge into the throne room of heaven, the sovereign God of the universe, like your parent owns the place, right? Like the kid whose mom or dad owns the place and they just kind of walk around like that? Like you can do that walking into heaven because God loves you. Isn't that crazy? Like you can talk to him about anything on your heart and mind because he already proved how much he loved you by sending Jesus for you. Any emotion you're going through or struggle or pain or joy you can communicate with him because he loves you and he proved it by sending Jesus. He's got the scars to prove it. Or just being with him, communing with him, enjoying his presence. You have full and free access because he made a way. He didn't wait for you to try to make a way. Prayer is how a Christian waits with purpose and you are free to pray if you've trusted in Jesus. Jesus. In the last couple minutes, I want to get practical about how we begin to devote ourselves to being a praying people. I've just got a couple of ideas of what we could do, but listen to me. There's not some revolutionary new thing you need to figure out and try. I don't have like a neat, cool method for you or whatever. There's a lot of great ways to do that. But the incredible thing is not like some new trick that you could learn about prayer, but being devoted to something so simple. Making something so clear and so simple, the center of gravity that your entire life revolves around, especially waiting this essential feature of your life. Redeeming even those moments of waiting to actually be communication and communication with the, communion with the Father. That's the incredible thing about this, a community devoted to something so simple. But friend, listen to me, if you're not a Christian this morning, God is not waiting for you to start a prayer life before he loves you. He's not waiting for you to have some new resolutions to be like a church-going person or a better person or someone who's trying harder. Even if you've been like bored the whole time I've talking, I'm talking, would you tune in for a second here? the God of the universe did something absolutely miraculous. When you were running away from him, he stepped into human history to redeem you. Not to tell you more stuff you need to try harder to do, but actually, Jesus living a perfect life you could not live and dying as the final payment for sin, raising to life to prove that there's nothing left for you to try to pay God back with or earn in his love, but there's a gift that you need to choose if you're gonna accept or not today. Forgiveness fellowship with God, being adopted into his family. So would your life of prayer begin with a prayer today to say, Jesus, I need a Savior, and you are the Savior. I I can't be king of my own life. You are the Lord. I trust you today. Would that be the start of a life devoted to prayer for you, actually praying and accepting the gift that Jesus is offering? And let the whole next year of your life, let alone all of eternity, be reshaped by that incredible good news that there is a Savior You need him and his name is Jesus and he's here for you. But Doxa, as a family, I just have a couple of ideas for how we could begin to be devoted to prayer. Again, this simple thing that becomes a center of gravity that starts to rewire everything around us. The first thing, there's a prayer from the Bible. Maybe not a prayer, it was a request, but that I love, it's become part of my prayer life. I wanna invite you into this too. You know, what we call the Lord's Prayer, um, as it's recorded it, it starts with Jesus' disciples coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And we get this incredible kind of like movement of the Lord's prayer. What if that became a prayer request for you? God, teach me to pray. I feel like that's one of those that like easy ones where you know he's going to answer it, right? There's some prayer requests where you're like, Lord, could I win the lottery? It's like, I don't know if you're going to win the lottery, but like teach us to pray. I feel like that's the kind of prayer request that God would love to answer. So why not even just start your prayer life with a really safe one, Right? One that you know you got to, he's going to answer for you. Lord, teach us to pray. And pray what you got. It's kind of a phrase we've used around here. A pastor named John Tyson is the first one I heard use it. Pray what you've got. Whatever emotion, whatever struggle, whatever joy, just pray what you've got. Don't wait until you've got clean, nice, neat spiritual language. Don't wait until you've got it all ordered and figured out. Just pray what you've got. If you want confidence to do that, look back at the Psalms. There's such a span of human emotion in the Psalms. In God's word recorded of of public and private crying out to God of what was going on. Just pray what you've got. Even if it's not pretty. Even if it's words you wouldn't use around other people, just pray what you've got. Start personally with him. Start by praying with just you and God, that communion. Jesus said, like, don't don't pray in public first as if you could kind of earn some religious reputation or whatever. Hypocrites do that where they pray not to be heard by God but be be heard by the people. But go secretly with you and the Father and talk with him. Pray with him, meet with him, listen to him. Pour out your heart to him and just wait and listen. Whether it's conviction or comfort, whatever he gives you, whatever guidance he gives, just be with him. Pray what you've got, pray alone, but also pray together. Like they were doing in, in verse 14, they were with one accord praying together. They were, they were gathering together like we do on, on the weeks of prayer. It's worth it for us to cancel the conversation and connection group once a month to pray together, to be together. Gather some people and begin praying. Maybe it's moms at your kid's school, and you just want to pray for the school and pray for your kids. Maybe it's coworkers. You just want to start praying together. Maybe it's a group of friends and you just pray together. Start praying together and even learning how to pray together. It is a process to be learned, right? It's something difficult sometimes to figure out, like, how much do I say? When do I say it? What if this dude prays for 15 minutes and I fall asleep? Like, you have to learn how to do this together, but if you're devoted to it, it become center of gravity, it's okay to learn through those things. Start praying about your prayer life. Pray that this would become a theme for you. That if someone were to ask you this question, what were you devoted to in the year 2024? That actually the real answer would be, I mean, I was devoted to prayer. It became a center of gravity where my instinctive reaction to things around me was to pray. Again, maybe God has you in, in a time of waiting. Like the specific thing that's been coming to mind as I've been talking about waiting, the specific pressure you've been feeling, the the unresolved situation in your life, maybe maybe that is actually God's sovereign kindness over you, inviting you to wait because he wants to draw you into a relationship more with him. Maybe it would actually be better for you and your relationship with God to put you through this painful time of waiting so that you could have more of God, not just more of the stuff that you wanted. I don't have time to tell you the stories of the the painful moments and the tears I've shed in seasons of waiting where I felt like God's thumb was on me, and I couldn't get away, and I couldn't squirm, and I couldn't run, but he's like, hey, wait, with me, with purpose. And he changed me through that. Not perfectly, not arrived, not whatever, but little by little, making prayer more of a center of gravity in my life. What would change in your life if, if you began to wait by praying, if you tapped into God's purpose by praying, what would change about your reality, your experience of life? What's the situation where you would actually maybe start to see God, God's answer and reconciliation? What's the, what's the place where you need to be a, an empowered witness about God, where you'd start to see him show up? What's the fruit that God would begin to bear through your life as you wait with purpose, as you pray and meet with him? What would change for us as a community if we were a people, again, where the center of gravity of our gatherings and our time was communication and communion with God? What would God do through a church of people that were devoted to prayer? I think we'd get to plant churches and, and get to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. I, I, I think we'd get to see reconciliation of relationship. I think we get to see God's movement in the city in ways that, that are beyond our expectations and our dreams it's the kind of church I want to be part of. Not because we got a neat, clever, cool program, or great graphic, or whatever, but because we're devoted to prayer. Because the God of the universe has invited us into experiencing him, and tapping into his purposes, and prayer is how a Christian waits with purpose. So friends, let's, let's pray. Father, in these moments we wait on you. Like Even as I'm standing here, I'm just waiting on you to work through your word in our hearts and our minds to re-center our lives on being with you. Would you cause us a church, to be a church that has the center of gravity, this, this devotion in us to be prayer? Even the moments in life where we've been avoiding waiting or struggling through waiting or gritting our teeth through waiting, would you redeem those moments and allow us to be people that talk with you through everything? Would you make the instinctive reaction of our hearts and our minds to to talk to you as we meet together to pray and to be with you? Lord, teach us to pray. Again, the situations that are coming to mind where we feel like we're stuck, we're stuck waiting and we're tired of it and we're frustrated with it and we're just saying, how long, God? Would you refocus our perspective to see your purpose? My friends in here that are struggling, would you give them hope that you actually do have a purpose in it? Just like you commanded the disciples to wait in these moments where you invite us to wait, would you transform us to a deeper dependence on you, a deeper relationship with you, an experience of closeness with you as we pray? Help us to be people that pray because we want to wait with purpose tapped into your purpose. We pray this in your name, Jesus.